Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. I don't think it gets much tougher than actually being involved in a will dispute. Generally speaking, people have lost a loved one and now they're engaged in a in a family feud with with their family and it, it, it really is about as painful as it gets I think. Dealing with an estate without a dispute can easily take a year. You add a dispute onto that and it could be easily two, three, four plus years. If you've got a particularly complex claim where there might be a number of parties, a number of witnesses, sometimes a number of experts you're looking at over sort of over a hundred thousand sometimes way more than that really to get all the way through to a trial today's episode is on the rise of contested wills now several decades ago a legal challenge to someone's will was a pretty unusual thing an increase in property prices as well as more people divorcing and remarrying mean more bereaved people are choosing to spend tens or even hundreds of thousands of pounds disputing a loved one's will and with more people dying unexpectedly during the pandemic without writing or updating their will law firms are reporting that inquiries about will disputes have more than doubled over the last year. For this episode, I'll start by passing you into the hands of witch money journalist Charlotte Gifford for her investigation into why these disputes arise, as well as the emotional and financial toll they can take, and alternative options for resolving these issues in more peaceful and less costly ways. Then I'll be back with witch wills expert James Buchan with lots of advice on how to make a will and avoid any pitfalls and make the whole process as easy as possible for you and your loved ones. We are witch. What do Martin Luther King, Robin Williams and Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren have in common? All their estates were disputed by their families. Your will has the potential to be one of the most emotionally loaded documents you'll ever write. Although all sorts of things can cause a dispute, What unites them is they're always incredibly painful for the families involved. Just look at Malcolm McLaren's will. He left everything to his wife, but more than that, he specifically wrote in his will that he didn't want his son, Joe Corey, to inherit anything. Imagine what it would feel like to read something like that. Speaking to The Telegraph in 2015, Joe Corey described how reading those words from his dad felt like a massive kick in the teeth. I was devastated, he told the interviewer. I'd rather die than write something like that to my daughter. If a loved one left you out of a will, how would you feel? We spoke to one person who this happened to, 
they chose not to be identified. Grace Farrell is a producer and presenter here at Witch. She'll read their words. When I was faced with a loved one's will that was utterly contrary to my expectations, my first reaction was deep shock, followed by a feeling of helplessness. The opportunity to talk to the deceased, to put right any misconceptions or misunderstandings, or to offset the effect of any adverse influences in play had gone forever. They were convinced that the will was unfair and didn't represent the person's true intentions, so they put in a legal challenge. Alison Parry, partner and head of trusts and wills at JMW Solicitors, tells me this is becoming increasingly common. Yeah, well, I think our um, our inquiries seem to have gone through the roof, to be honest. There's definitely a lot more people contesting. And one of the reasons for that is probably the increase in deaths recently because of COVID. Um, I would say that has had an impact. But Alison says that her law firm noticed this increase before the pandemic. There's a lot of things at play here. And one of them is that it's becoming less and less common for people to divide their estate up in a predictable way. In the past, you would normally have a very traditional arrangement, I would say, probably more common than not, where you would have husband and wife and children. And on the first parent's death, it would all pass to the other one. And on the second parent's death, it would all pass equally between children. That was a very standard way of leaving your estate. But there's obviously less and less of that now, um, firstly, because of the the Um, more blended families that are out there and obviously people also have a realisation that they don't have to do that if they don't want to so if they don't get on with one child they're not obliged to leave them a certain proportion of their estate so that that has also caused a number of issues. If you feel a will is not what the deceased intended then putting in a legal claim can be a very empowering thing. The person we spoke to explains how they went about challenging the will. When my family and I discovered that we could put a caveat in place, quickly and easily, as a first step to throwing light on what had happened, these feelings of helplessness receded. The caveat allowed for a pause, preventing a probate application from being granted to the executor while we aired our concerns. During this period, we hired a solicitor who was a specialist in contested probate. She was excellent. Her previous experience of similar cases meant that she understood our concerns from the outset. She explained what was possible and what wasn't. We suspected a level of undue influence or fraudulent calumny by another beneficiary. But as our solicitor pointed out, this can be very hard to prove. You may not have heard of undue influence or fraudulent calumny before, but they're both grounds on which you can argue a will is invalid. Fraudulent calumny is when one potential beneficiary effectively poisons the mind of the testator against another potential beneficiary. Alison explains what undue influence means. So an undue influence claim is where you say that somebody has actually coerced the deceased into making a will in their favour. Now, the reason it is quite rare is because um, it's very, very difficult to prove that somebody effectively forced someone else to make a will. In all likelihood, if that did happen, the only two people that would be aware of it would be the deceased who's no longer with us and the person who has influenced them who's clearly not going to say that they've done it. But there are actually a number of grounds on which you could challenge a will. These include arguing that the will wasn't made properly or the deceased wasn't fully aware of its contents. Alternatively, you could argue the person lacked capacity, which means they weren't of sound mind when they made the will. With cases of dementia and Alzheimer's on the rise, this is a claim that's becoming increasingly common. But like undue influence, it's extremely difficult to prove someone lacked capacity to write their will, 
especially because, as relatives of people with dementia will know, capacity is fluid. Sometimes you can be very lucid, other times not. So what evidence would you need to argue someone lacked capacity or was influenced by another person to write a will? One of the first things you will be doing is getting medical records. Now, it, it's not so simple as to say just get GP records necessarily, although that might be a really good starting point, but you would tend to have to apply for GP records, any hospital records if there have been stays, but also things like nursing records, care home records, social services records. So if any of those services, such as GPs, social services um, or care staff, have been involved in that person's care, then quite often you can get little things in their notes um, where they make comment on comments on people who may have been surrounding the deceased or who may have been offering some kind of informal care. And those records can be really valuable because, I mean, you have no idea what's going to be in them when you first apply for them. But often those are the things that might turn a court. And the reason for that is because they're always made contemporaneously. So the court will have something before them of what a person at the time thought was going on with a particular thing. Memories can be distorted. So those medical records and social services records might provide the only contemporaneous records that a court can say, well, those categorically are going to be correct. And if this is what a person thought at the time was going on, then that's really good evidence as against somebody who makes a witness statement a few years down the line. This kind of evidence-gathering process is exactly what makes inheritance disputes especially laborious and expensive compared to other forms of litigation. Laura Wynne, a solicitor at Witch Legal, explains that staying on top of this process is really important if you're to try and keep legal costs down. I'd say initially try and gather as much evidence as you can, as much information, as many people um, who can provide statements as you can before you even go to the solicitor just so that when you once you've got a solicitor or or once you're in a position to bring the claim formally you're there ready to go with all of these um, all this evidence because in the end that's what you're going to need to to bring a successful claim. Alison explains how easily the costs can really skyrocket. So I would say for your most simple claim um, you're looking at around about 35 to 40,000. If you've got a particularly complex claim where there might be a number of parties, a number of witnesses, sometimes a number of experts, um, then you know, you're looking at over sort of over a hundred thousand, sometimes way more than that, really, to get all the way through to a trial. One way to possibly keep the legal costs from spiraling out of control is to explore mediation. This is a form of alternative dispute resolution where a third-party mediator steps in to try and resolve the dispute. I mean, mediation's actually only been around for in this country for thir- about 30-odd years. So actually, in terms of sort of legal history, it's actually quite a new thing. They basically spend time with sort of each party understanding um, what their needs and interests are, and um, they then shuttle between the parties to try and and broker a settlement. That's Julia Burns speaking, a mediator who specialises in inheritance disputes. She says that convincing someone to try mediation is often difficult, because by the point you're in a legal challenge with someone, relationships have usually broken down to a point where it seems impossible to resolve the issue in any neutral way. I mean, in the past, I've, I've actually had to 
the company clients of mine as a lawyer to the toilet in the middle of a mediation that's face to face because they were so worried about bumping into to somebody from from the other room. But research shows that more than 70% of those who use mediation services will resolve their issues outside of a courtroom, saving them a fortune in legal costs. Julia explains why mediation can allow for a breakthrough that litigation might not. Often parties involved in a a dispute, um, by the time it gets to mediation, can can be quite entrenched um, in their positions, um, in their sort of legal, not just their legal positions, but also their emotional positions. Um, People tend to get to a situation where they can be quite a little bit blinkered in the way they see things and their perspectives can become quite um, fixed and narrow. And um, the mediation process is designed to really help parties to start to see things from a different perspective. It tends to be a slow shift in perspective that starts with the sort of pre-mediation call and the preparation for the mediation. And and then slowly but surely, once the client feels heard, and that's absolutely crucial, once they feel heard by the mediator and even better if they get the feeling that they're really being heard by the other party about what's important to them, that's when they tend to start actually just relaxing into the process a little bit more and and actually just showing a willingness to settle. At the start of August this year, the government called for evidence to avoid unnecessary litigation, which can become extremely costly for families. Mediation is one possible way forward, and the pandemic seems to have made it an even cheaper, more accessible option for families. I think the pandemic has had an effect, without a doubt, because... Initially, when the pandemic hit and everything moved onto Zoom overnight, as the world did, um, and quite a few people uh, didn't trust online mediation at that point, and they sort of held back from mediation, thinking at the time, well, hopefully it'll only be a few weeks or months and then we'll go back to normal. Um, But for those that did try online mediation, I think they realised that actually it's incredibly effective um, for people and it's actually obviously a lot cheaper than having um, a face-to-face mediation, which involves um, the clients paying for the travel of not only the mediator, but all the lawyers. And sometimes that can include train fares, hotel bills, and it can cost thousands of pounds simply to get people to a building. And, and then you have a situation where if you're having a face-to-face mediation, these these clients are having to actually go to the same building as the people, their family, who they've fallen out with. And that can create a very high level of anxiety for some clients and actually can be a reason why they actually refuse to mediate because they just can't face it. With online mediation, that layer of anxiety is being completely stripped away and people can join the mediation from the comfort of their own homes. Of course, mediation isn't just about saving money. It can also save you a huge amount of emotional pain. And generally, people come into the mediation, and when I say to them, um, what's the most important thing to you about this mediation? I would say 80% of the time, at least, maybe 90, people say closure. And and actually, it's that closure that is often, is seems to be more than a priority than money. It's very rare that people actually say to you, 
what's the most important thing to me? Well, I want X amounts of money. It, it, it's bizarre. It's money becomes a point of principle and somehow people get themselves to a point where they believe that if they achieve the money, then that's going to heal the hurt and take the pain away. Um, but most, I mean, the reason why I love mediation so much and I believe in it so much is it, it, it is a very rewarding thing to be involved in by taking somebody from that point of real pain and hurt to the end of the day when they've settled and you can just see the tension and the anxiety just wash away from them and often that's when you get smiles and tears and the emotion really comes out. The person we spoke to who contested a will said they also felt this strong sense of relief. For me, contesting a will has meant that I have been able to retrieve parts of my past which I felt were lost and revisit happy memories of my years with the deceased. Unfortunately, the changed will had previously stood as a barrier to this. By successfully contesting the will, my family and I set out to rehabilitate the testator's place in the family as a nurturing and loving person to us and recover what he meant to us during his lifetime. Finally, it's perhaps worth pointing out that for me, while the practicalities of contesting the will had its painful moments, these were insignificant compared to the pain and anguish caused by the content of the will itself. The fact that we had the support of the extended family throughout undoubtedly helped, and these relationships became closer and remain closer as a result of going through the process. To avoid a will dispute in the first place, One of the best things you can do is make sure you have a will written. Laura explains why it's important not to do a rush job of this. I would always advise that you use a professional or at least a professionally drafted template for writing your will. Um, It may seem very straightforward to just write down what you want, uh, but there are legal interpretations that need to be taken into account and it's very easy for something that was very clear to you to be quite ambiguous when somebody else is reading it. Laura also advises that you give some thought to what your executors will have to go through when dealing with your estate after you're gone. I mean, under English law, people can leave their estate absolutely however they want. Their, their will can leave their estate to whoever they choose. Um, a lot of people choose to leave it to families and they may leave it equally or, or they may not. Um, but in essence, it's a case of thinking about what is actually going to work in practice. So if you want to appoint all your children as executors, um, then that's fine. But think about, do they actually get on? Are they actually going to agree on how to deal with the estate? And the same with the beneficiaries. Um, If you want to leave more to one child than others, it's a good idea to write uh, a side letter, a letter of wishes um, to keep with the will that explains why you've made that decision. We are which. Thanks so much, Charlotte, for your investigation. It gives such an interesting insight into the world of contested wills and not only the emotional toll it can take, but the staggering legal costs involved as well, which would obviously exclude so many people from being able to go down the legal route at all. So it really shows how important it is to make your will watertight and meaning exactly what you intend in the eyes of the law. So I'm joined by James Buchan from Which Wills and this in a nutshell 
well is a wills writing service we offer at which to help make the process straightforward and affordable and we'll get on to the range of options and will writing services out there in a moment but now James thank you firstly uh, for joining me can you start by talking us through what a document needs to contain to be seen as a valid legally binding will Hi, Lucia. No problem at all. So, I mean, first of all, you kind of hit the nail on the head that the the doc, it needs to be a document. So it has to be a physical uh, document that has to be in writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's certain things that you would want to see in the document. uh, But before any of that, you kind of need to make sure that the document complies with um, certain uh, legal um, points. So something called uh, Section 9 of the Wills Act, um, which still governs uh, wills uh, nowadays. There's certain um, formalities that have to be complied with. So obviously the will has to be in writing. Uh, you need to make sure that it's been signed by the testator. So the testator is the person making the will. Uh, and it has to also be witnessed by two independent people. So they're not family members or anybody uh, named in the will as a beneficiary. Uh, and they have to witness the document at the same time uh, the executor signs it. So there's, those are kind of the most basic formalities that need to be complied with. Uh, but in terms of the will itself, you would want to make sure that it appoints uh, executors in the will. So they are the people that will deal with the administration of the estate. You'd want to make sure it takes into account that it revokes any former wills that you've made. And that has to explicitly be stated in the will to make sure that it is the most valid and recent up-to-date will. Uh, and then obviously you want to make sure that you appoint the beneficiaries to so the people that you will inherit your estate when you've died. And those are kind of the most basic things that you would need to see in, in any will to make sure that it's going to be uh, you know, valid once uh, you have died and passed on. And in terms of writing up the will, it is something you can do yourself then, though you'll need to be careful not to make any mistakes, which might not be easy from, from what you've just said. Yeah. But there are free will writing services out there, as well as other affordable options. And then, of course, there's getting a solicitor. So what are some of these services and, and what's the difference? When might it be particularly advisable to get a solicitor involved yeah, I mean, you're right. There's there's a huge range of options available in the legal market, if you like, um, now, probably more so than ever. So, you know, mm-hmm. ranging from the most basic, you know, off the shelf, 999 uh, jobs that you do at home uh, to a full solicitor service, if you like, that kind of takes your instructions and gives you the advice and drafts everything and makes sure the will is correctly executed. And obviously, what you're paying for is is it, it's the advice and the service at the solicitor end. Whereas obviously, if if you're only buying something off the shelf that doesn't come with any specific advice, that that is going to be you know have the pitfalls of 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 what is isn't included there. But there are also a, you know, a range of services in between. So you do have services like which wills, which are online, uh, and we then have. Um, at paralegals who uh, are on the telephone and email who are able to help if people have questions just to give bits of guidance um, and you do have some services which are similar to a solicitor service but they're not over the uh, face-to-face they're via telephone so it's really looking at what services are available and, and what your circumstances are as to what if which is best for your circumstances and I think as a solicitor, I've heard a lot of times from people, you know, my situation is very simple. Uh, and until you then actually start asking people about their situation, it turns out it's not that simple. But it's difficult because you, you don't know what you don't know, I suppose. Um, 
But I would say there's lots of circumstances where a solicitor service is the most appropriate service. So if you have, like you know, like you mentioned briefly, if you have kind of you know second marriages or a, a complex family situation, or if you're not including a family member who might expect to inherit, um, or if you even have you know very complex financial situation, if you have agricultural assets or business assets, um, or you have overseas assets, you know my, my advice would always be to to instruct a solicitor to assist you to make sure that your will is correct drafted um, you know a lot of the time uh, my team will speak to people and they will say you know your, your circumstances are not right for our service we advise you to go mm. and see a solicitor because that is the most appropriate thing for you and some people do take that advice um, some people don't want to take that advice and obviously that is their choice and they prefer to to use our service or they prefer to have a go at drafting the will themselves but I think sometimes you know a will is a very important document and actually it's worth investing that money and making sure you've you've got the right advice and you 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 know you make sure you've got the will correct uh, and that you can then kind of rest your head on your pillow at night and you don't have to think about it really I suppose. And now if you've written up a will firstly obviously it's brilliant you've taken that step but it's not actually as simple as writing a will and then leaving it in a safe place and forgetting about it because when your circumstances change so too should your will and you hinted at that earlier when you said it needs to state that it's your most recent will so so yes. James why is this then um why should you update your will after major life events and how should you do it because I'm guessing an asterisk or a scribble down note at the bottom won't <laughs> quite cut it no I mean I mean first of all uh, don't ever uh, write anything on your will okay. uh, is the first word of advice don't put any asterisks any lines don't write anything on there that can be incredibly problematic so uh, you know once your will is kind of uh, uh, executed pop it inside an envelope and, and don't kind of uh, touch it but yes I mean you know, life is fluid, uh, you know, things change and, and sometimes they change and they don't real we don't realise they're going to change. So obviously you need to make sure that your will is is in, is kind of accords with, with what's happening in your life. So generally, you know, as a rule of thumb, I would say pull your will out of the drawer every couple of years and take a look over it to, to make sure it still uh, reflects your wishes. Um, or when there is what's called a life-changing event. So that could be you know, all, all manner of things. So, you know, you've, you've remarried or you've become married, you've divorced, you know, you're in a different relationship or you've had children or your financial circumstances has changed, you know, and just to make sure that actually the will is, is still suitable for for your current circumstances. If it isn't, there are things you can do. So you can make a new will and then make sure it is up to date. You can also, um, uh, do uh, execute a document called a codicil, which is it, it's a it's a separate document to your will, but it amends the content from the will. It should only be really used in quite simple circumstances. So, if for example you're wanting to change an executor, uh, or you're wanting to include or remove a, a very simple legacy, um, but if you kind of need to do more complex things, I would always advise that you make a new will um, because codicils can sometimes be quite difficult in terms of interpreting the will and, and making sure that 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 you haven't done something that you didn't necessarily want to do. And speaking of um, separate documents, we heard earlier about a letter of wishes. I suppose also you'd want to update anything else like those. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a letter of wishes is is probably even easier to update than a will because it, it might be that your circumstances change, but actually your will is absolutely fine. But it could be, for example, that, you know, in your letter of wishes, you may have written 
you know how for example you might want your children to be uh to be raised by their guardians you know mm. and it could be actually that's change you may want them to go to a certain school you might not want them to go to a certain school or it could be that your financial circumstances have changed and you no longer have a bank account with one bank and you've moved to another bank so a letter of wishes mm. is kind of it's a more informal document there shouldn't be anything in there um as, as a letter of wishes isn't kind of a, a binding document so you shouldn't put in there like beneficiary gifts or anything on those lines but actually it can be really helpful in letting your executors know kind of where your assets are for example and how you would like them to deal with with certain things in your estate when it arises and one thing this episode has revealed is how stressful administering an estate, de- dealing with it can be for those loved ones after someone passes away. So if we can break that down a bit, what does the executor or administrator typically have to do to deal with an estate? You're completely, you're completely right. I mean, it's, um, you know, you're, you're, first of all, you're dealing with somebody that has just died. So you have all of the emotional strain of that. And then you're trying to then deal with their finances and their their their, their circumstances. And really, I mean, being an executor or administrator of an estate, it's a bit like, you know, imagine if you were moving house, mm. uh, everything you would need to do to kind of to transfer everything over to that that new address, if you like. And that's very similar with an estate. You know, it's not just a case of the bank accounts and those sort of things. You've got to cancel the broadband and you've got to make sure you're dealing with the gas and the electric and the council tax and mm. all those things that are relating to the property. Um, and, and if you can imagine, you know, for your own situation, you know who you, you bank with and you know, you know, who deals with all those sorts of things. But you might be an executive for somebody and you, you don't know all of that information. So you first of all have to find all of that out. And then you have to then go through the stress of contacting all of these individual kind of third parties, if you like, and making sure that you're, you know, you're ascertaining the the all of the right information that is required to enable you to deal with that person's estate so you know potentially you are going to have to report an estate to HMRC and you need to make sure you're providing you know HMRC with accurate advice and to make sure that you've ascertained that advice in the first place and it can be a very very stressful time as you know there is a lot of uh, work that needs to be undertaken by the executors to get to that point. Absolutely. I mean, when you start to think about all those details, you can see how it can become such a huge job dealing with someone's estate. So so should you consider getting a solicitor to help you if it's looking quite complicated? And I suppose, how, how much could this set you back? I think it's definitely something that people should consider. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where some estates can be very, very straightforward and very simple. And actually, there isn't a taxation problem. And you may just have somebody that has one bank account, for example. And actually, that's quite straightforward. It could be that the estate actually is very, very complex. And that's just from a finance point of view. Don't forget that you are also dealing with people. You have beneficiaries who sometimes... You know, most of the time they're fine, but actually sometimes beneficiaries can be quite difficult and can be quite hard work. And so sometimes it's always worth considering uh, employing the help of a solicitor or, a, you know, a, a, a probate company to assist you in, in in administering the estate. In terms of how much it costs, it, it very much depends. I mean, it's obviously, 
Some solicitors will charge their hourly charging rate, which is dependent upon, you know, that whatever it is they choose to charge and you should ascertain what those charges are going to be. Um, mm. Some people, solicitors will charge uh, fixed fees. Um, you don't tend to find so many uh, solicitor firms charging fixed fees now. Some firms charge a combination of a fixed fee and uh, an hourly charging rate. Um, but, you know, you don't have to agree to those charges. So it's worth phoning a few firms and, and finding out what their charges are going to be and, and how long they think it's all going to take. Um, also, what people don't sometimes understand is that you don't have to employ a solicitor to do the full job. So if actually, for example, there's just a certain part of the estate that you might be very you know, not aware of and a bit worried about, so it could be like the taxation element, for example, you could just employ a solicitor to advise you on the taxation element and to assist you in completing the taxation forms. But then all the other elements of the estate, like we discussed earlier, you know, people may be fairly capable of doing themselves and may be quite happy to do it themselves. So I think, first of all, it's figure out what bits you're happy doing, what bits you need mm -hmm. some help with, and then call around solicitors and, and probate, uh, you know, providers and find out what is possible and how much it's going to cost you before entering into any kind of contract or agreement. And as we've touched on, if you've made someone the executor of your will, for them to deal with your estate, they'll need to apply for what's known as probate, which is the legal right to then handle your estate. So, James, do you have any advice on this and, and what you can do now to make probate easier for your executors? I think the first thing I would say is, is before you even make your will and appoint anybody as an executor is actually talk to that person and make sure they're happy mm. to be an executor. And you would think that that would you know, obviously why wouldn't you do that? But actually, some people don't mm. and they just appoint people. And then it comes as a bit of a shock to that person when they get a phone call from somebody saying, actually, you've been appointed as the executor. So have a chat with them first and make sure they're happy to do it. And then what I would say is, is to make life as easy for the executors as possible is to provide them with as much information as possible. Now, that doesn't have to be before you've died. Uh, you know, it could be you leave them, like we said, a letter of licious or you know, a letter of instruction for them to open after the event in order to kind of advise them on, you know, where your assets and liabilities are, how you would like your funeral to be organised. I mean, that's one of the things that you know, organising, I've organised funerals for clients and I didn't really know them. Mm. So that's, and that is quite stressful because you kind of, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're getting it right for them. And if you have no pointers or instructions, you're, you're kind of doing it blind. Um, so, you know, it's simple things is, is try to provide your executors with as much detail as possible as to where, you know, everything is, all of the various third parties that you have you know, relationships with to make sure that they are able to to get that information as quickly as possible and, and aren't kind of chasing, you know, their tails trying to find information and, and having to rifle through your papers and all those sorts of things in order to get the basic information they need in order to deal with your estate. So a letter of wishes or a letter or even have a conversation with them uh, about things beforehand uh, would be uh, incredibly helpful to most people. And I think it would be much appreciated. Thanks again to Charlotte and James and thank you for listening to today's show. And if you've got a minute, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. And it's a great way to let us know any questions you have on the topics we've covered. Plus, they really help others find the podcast and get the really important money and personal finance advice out there. You can also find us on social media at Which Money and for more news and advice, visit which.co.uk forward slash money. 
This episode of the Witch Money podcast was produced by Charlotte Gifford, recorded and edited by Rob Lilly with additional support from Ian Aikman and Kim Carver. Mm-hmm.